Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's Local Voices episode of Lines from Loganberry, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden hosts authors Dr. Kate Anderson Foley, Ph.D., and Jennifer Anderson Smith in an interview to discuss their new book, Ida Finds Her Voice, an anti-racism and pro-tolerance children's book. Their book can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links included in the episode description. Thank you for listening and enjoy! Hello, my name is Maisha Wilson-Hedden, and today on Lines of Loganberry, we have Kate Anderson Foley, PhD, and also Jennifer Anderson-Smith, the authors of Ida Finds Her Voice. Ida Finds Her Voice uh, is an illustrated children's book to help children and parents talk about hard topics like prejudice and intolerance. Dr. Kate Anderson Foley is the CEO of the Education Policy and Practice Group, and they are consultants helping local, state, and national groups with asset-based educational policies and practices. Jennifer Anderson-Smith is a grassroots community activist working on confronting issues of race with constructive dialogue. Jennifer is also the mother of four biracial children. Jennifer and Kate, welcome to Lines of Loganberry. Thanks for having us, Maisha. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Okay, so my first question for you is for the people that aren't familiar um, with Ida Finds Her Voice, can you describe for me, scene by scene, the series of events that Ida experiences throughout her day? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, So this book is on purpose a slew of, of scenarios that happen real life. And it's a, it, but it touches on all kinds of things from disability uh, to personal space issues to culture to sexual orientation and to race. And the idea is that Ida is just a happy-go-lucky child. She's a little girl, and she's, you know, happy. She's very inquisitive, and she has friends, and she's so excited to go to school. And at first, she gets on the bus and is excited to see her friend, Dev. And here he comes up on the bus. He comes on the bus in a different way because he wears leg braces. And she is excited to see him, yet she starts to hear some things and the strangeness that she feels in her stomach when kids start to make fun of her friend. And um, we, you know, we purposely use certain words in a rhythm type of way to help young children um, you know, not only resonate to what the issue is, but they could certainly start to say those things over and over again. You know, I have this strange feeling in my stomach, or we use the word ouch in a way that would symbolize that hurts. Um, 
one of the other issues along her day is uh, a child, a boy gets too close to her and hugs her without permission. Uh, that could be a provocative subject, but we feel that it's absolutely part of, you know, what does it mean to be um, tolerant of people, but respectful of people and um, just respect. That's basically what that one is. And know how to use the words to create that boundary. One of the other and probably a very powerful example is um, Ida, who's out on recess. And we purposely put this in the context of school within a week, you know, in and outside of school, just to, again, ground children. This is a real, these are real things that happen. So she's out on the playground. She loves playground and she loves running really fast. And, you know, she loves being superhero. And all of a sudden she sees a little, a new girl. And um, she wants to play, right? Because kids just want to play. And in this case, it's a little girl who's got a headscarf on, different culture. And she's excited to play because she's alone. The girl is alone and she's new. But another girl comes up and says, you can't play with her. Why not? Ida's confused. And the other little girl says, because my parents said, you can't play with her because she's Muslim. So to which Ida responds like, ouch. Doesn't she know everybody wants to play? Doesn't everybody want to have a friend? This leaves Ida so confused. So they're starting to see a buildup of things that are happening. Uh, Another example is um, going bicycling over to her two uncles' house and their rainbow flag is in tatters and the police officer is there. And she, again, is scared for her uncles, wants to make sure they're safe, but she doesn't understand how as much as she loves how can other people not love back? And this causes a lot of angst for her. And the uncles say that not everybody thinks that they should be together. And so this is a more confusion for her. One of the culminating events is um, at the playground because Ida's parents say, you know, she's had so much going on. Let's go to play and just relax and have fun and laugh. That's one of the things they love to do is go to the park and play, uh, play ball. So Ida's uh, father is African-American and Ida's mother is uh, white. And as they're playing ball, she starts to go for the ball that is, you know, long and hard as, as it's written in the book. And she's going up to run. The father sees that Ida is running toward the street. So naturally he wants to make sure his child is safe. He runs after her. You could hear crowds, someone in the crowd saying, you know, stop, you know, stop that that man's going to get that child. And uh, these are some of the real events that happen. And he gets her safely in his arms and turns and says, this is my child. The mother runs up, says, this is our child. And that is the tipping point for Ida because she now starts to see this as why does every time something is happening, I get this strange feeling in my stomach and why are people, you know, saying things about my friends, the new girl, simply because she's from a different culture, my uncles that I love and you mom and dad. And what does that say about me? You know, where do I fit into this? So mom and dad do a great job of explaining discrimination, prejudice, and this notion of intolerance. And there's a definition for intolerance. And I just want to have a little caveat here. Sometimes people think intolerance is, oh, I'm just, you know, placating you. I'm just accepting you. No, no, no. In this, we're talking about tolerance as inclusion, as someone who, you know, wraps your arms around to say, 
we see you for who you are and what a wonderful thing that is. And so as they're navigating these hard conversations about real life and real situation, the parents really want to emphasize that it is through her and them, and you can find your voice, and you can stand up for all the things that you had that strange feeling in your stomach about. And she realizes she's extraordinary because she listened to her inside voice, and now she's got the power to stand up and you know bring out the hero in, in her, but each of us. And that's really some of the message of this story, is that you listen to your inside voice, your gut feeling. If something's not right, it's not right. And sometimes young children don't have the words to express that. We as adults, that's our role and responsibility. And as the last page points out, everybody's included in this. And um, she is saying, let's stand up for love. What a wonderful concept, right? It's simple, but it's very hard to achieve sometimes. It's very profound and deep, um, but kindness is everything. And above all of those things, if we can see people for who they are um, and include and wrap our arms around them and stand up and speak out when something's not right, we will have a more just and loving society. And that's what uh, the story is about. So can you tell me, who did you write the book for? Like, who do you think will be the primary beneficiary of this book? So we wrote the book for young children because we believe that uh, you can never start too young. And as you know, you probably know, you know, the studies show that by three months old, babies' faces are orienting towards certain, like their own ethnicity and, you know, by two and three, they're starting to attach meaning to tones of voice or certain words that are going on. We're saying, let's interrupt that. Let's start early. Let's start to have conversations. Let's start to unravel a lot of these things that create intolerance and create prejudice and, and intolerance. What we want to have is that young reader and no, you've, you've got the book in front of you, Maisha. There's so many pieces of that visually that will you know, resonate with children and parents can start to have conversations. But it also stretches up to, let's say, up to fourth grade because the characters in the story, such as Ida, you know, was honored from Ida B. Wells, Smalls from Robert Smalls. So we can start to get to some topics and then some historical pieces, and teaching the right history. I'm sorry, Jennifer, go ahead. No, that was, that was perfect. I just wanted to make sure that we add that, you know, fourth and fifth graders, you can have, right. uh, you know, teachers, you know, like, okay, let's, let's look at this, and let's see who this Robert Smalls is, and then, you know, investigate, you know, we start yeah. learning different history. It's a very wide range, and it's for however someone wants to use it. So for someone who has a newborn, start reading it to them, you know, and they they might just enjoy it for the pretty colors on the page up until right. fifth grade, you know, that they're actually learning something about our history that we would never have known before. Right. And it's not just for children. It's for any adult in a child's life, <laughs> you know, because sometimes adults have the most difficult time talking about certain subjects when children are just naturally inquisitive. And instead of shunning it away, going, you yeah, let's not talk about that or hush, hush. No, let's talk. We've got to have conversations and maybe they're going to be uncomfortable. So um, from my perspective, the book ends without a prescription for responding to other people's prejudices. Mm -hmm. So when kids on the bus 
mock the little boy with braces on his leg. Ida doesn't really say anything in response. When they exclude the Muslim girl from joining their playing circle on the playground, Ida does effectively just go along with her friends and exclude the Muslim girl. And so then she gets to her parents and and her change was very much internal, right? Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm on the side of love, but she doesn't really act. So I wanted to know why you decided to leave the book open-ended, like why you decided to not have really have a prescription for responding to other people's prejudices. And I'm curious about this myself because oftentimes my white friends will come to me and tell Mm -hmm. me about something racist that -hmm. they heard from one of their friends or from one of their family members. And I'll say, well, what did you do? What did you say? And they'll say, well, I couldn't do anything. Or they'll say, like, what could I possibly have done? And my answer to this has always been, look at the person, interrupt them and say, not cool. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. so, there are so many prejudices. I mean, right. even as a Black person, I can tell you fairly typically, I mean, fairly often, I will hear a group of people say something anti-Semitic. Right. And I will hear a group of people say something anti-immigrant. And mm-hmm. it's my response. I just say, not cool. And they right. know, don't bring that in front of me. Right. right. It stops right. the conversation. And I think it's an important step because it lets the person around you know that you're not co-signing what they're saying. So, okay. So how, yeah. so tell me how you dealt with this with Ida. So I, so I hear what you're saying and I would, I'm um, just going to you know, challenge the thinking a little bit to say, uh, for example, when she was trying to play with a little girl who was Muslim, she did not go with her other friend. She walked away. I just want to make sure we're clarifying that. Um, one thing that I want to point out is it's very much an internal change of the book that that's the design because while we are interrupting, as you said, that's not cool. We're using the word, the the mechanism, ouch, as that hurts. Remember this is for little children, but it has to start from the inside. You know, change has to start from the inside. They see the outside. It's not matching. They are trying to make sense of it. And then pretty soon those two things come together where the outside and the inside go, oh, oh, I get this. And that's what happens toward the book, the end of the book after mom and dad start to have a conversation with her. And she realizes that she's her own hero and that now she can stand up and speak out for her friends and anything else that she sees is wrong. And that's why we tried to anchor you know, listening to your gut, using the mechanisms of ouch, or wow, doesn't everybody want a friend or, okay, he gets on the bus in a different way. So she's not, not saying anything. She is learning as well. And as the, at the end of the book where the, the, the March scene is, that's where the messages are. So I would say we would not have a prescription we want to have the inclusionary piece of all those different things that you see on that page and all those different types of people. But one of our messages is you have to find the hero in you. And we say that to parents as well. Start a conversation, you know, start a, start a group of other parents who might be struggling as well. Start, 
you have to start. As much as awareness is the first step, action is the second step. And that's what this book is really um, advocating for. And then finally, I would say, you know, equity is a never-ending pursuit. And again, this book sets it up to say, ah, I see that no matter what, I am armed. I'm arming myself now with how do I spot it? How do I stand up? How do I speak out for, uh, again, love is love. Uh, Stand up for love. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Like those are the things we want to start to have in the lexicon. Uh, Jennifer, let me um, throw you a question. Okay, so then in your bio, you self-identify as an activist, an advocate, and an ally. So how do you feel about the conclusion? Like, do you think that it gives teachers, parents enough guidance about how should uh, somebody a little, little below middle school respond to everyday racism? You know, that's a good question. Um, This is Ida's journey about how to find her voice. And at the end, she's finding her voice and she's realizing, oh, I do have a voice and I am going to stand up for love. So this is kind of an introduction to Ida. You know, we are hoping to do more Ida books, but we wanted our first book to present everything. So in the book, we, you know, we talk about you know, the last page, we're referencing uh, climate change, ageism, you know, things that we don't even touch in the prior pages. So these are all things that are important to us, you know, arts, advocacy, uh, disabilities, all these things that are important today. So we knew it was a lot, Maisha, and we didn't want to exclude issues. So this was the best way that we felt that we could present it. And, and I guess the reason why we had it this way is because we wanted questions. We wanted kids to be able to have a lot of questions. And, and maybe the parents are going to have questions while they're looking at this book. And so that from this book, kid might ask a question and the adult either has an answer for that child or they'll say, hey, let's look into this. So it is open-ended in that regard, but it, it is we wanted to make sure that there are questions that are going to be asked uh, so that we do move forward as a society to become a better, better people. Wonderful. And, so, and Maisha, if I can just add one other, so one other anecdote, um, there was a, a friend of mine who has it presented to her son and they read it all the time. And he's a little shy at certain times. And she uses the regular phrase of what would Ida do? So it was that springboard into real life but based on something that's relatable to children. So you two are sisters and you got together and you wrote this book. So I want to know a little bit about your writing process. How did you two decide that you were going to write this book together? How did you collaborate? We're actually cousins. Oh, you're cousins. Okay. (laughs) We're actually cousins. I'll, I'll kick it off and then turn it over to Jennifer. How about that? Good. Uh, So I, a few years ago, based on my professional work and my responsibilities for um, protecting children in a lot of different ways, um, I was the one who was always working with children who've been marginalized, you know, structurally, institutionally. And in the last few years, I've seen this increase in vitriol and just hate, you know, intolerance for people and people being emboldened to say things out loud and to hurt people. And throughout my professional life 
and in my community, you know, I'd see people not sending their children to school because they were afraid that, you know, kids didn't want to go because they didn't know if their parents were going to be there or they were going to get taken away um, with some of the immigration that uh, things that were going on. All of that being said, this story had been percolating in me for a while. And then I finally said, I, I got to I gotta get this out because kids are really feeling the effects. And if we're forgetting about the kids, then what, we're, what are we doing? We're raising a whole generation of hateful people and we need to interrupt that. And so um, I knew I had a comrade in arms, so to speak, uh, with Jennifer, because, you know, she and I share a lot of, you know, the same passions for this wanting to make a world a better place. And so I reached out to her and I said, hey, I'm thinking about this idea. And what are your thoughts? And she said, yes. I think it took a half a second. <laughs> it took a half a second. And, yeah. And it, and it was something that we both have great passion for. That we, we want to do our part to right. make the world a better place. And we felt that we had something to share. You guys obviously both shared a strong vision and a strong passion for this Mm -hmm. book, but it is a book and you had to bring an illustrator on board. (laughs) How did you work with your illustrator? How did you, um, you know, bring a visual package to this, to your passion project? So can I just, let me just start real fast that, you know, we had the story and we drafted back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we had to get Ida and we had to get Ida the right way of who Ida was and what she looked like and what her essence was and all that. And then uh, Jennifer can pick it up from there. She had a great, great uh, acquaintance. Yeah. So I used to live right outside of Philadelphia and the group that I was involved with there, there was an illustrator that was just doing all of the work, uh, lawn signs, great thing for the cause. So I was friends with her and just asked, you know, she's a comic illustrator. So we had to really work through that and to find our Ida, but it, it actually was very helpful because she had gone through the process of, she's illustrated a number of books. So she was actually a great pick for us because yeah, uh, helped us out immensely. She's wonderful. Don Griffin Studios. She's, she's absolutely wonderful. So the one issue that Kate and I had, it was like, ah, it's not necessarily such a great look that we have three white people. Right. Um, you know, so that we were aware of that. Um, we had only a specific amount of money, you know, we, it just kind of fell into place the way it happened. Um, You know, if we had more opportunity or, you know, I don't know if we would have looked further into finding a person of color, but, you know, it was something that was on our mind, but it it just kind of happened organically. Um, Yep. You know, we were happy with the, well, it's a beautiful project. It turned out very, very nicely. It's a lovely book. So um, Jennifer, uh, you are the mother of four biracial children. Um, you yourself are, uh, you are a white woman. Your, uh, your partner, I take it, is African-American? Correct. So I have a question about that, especially as it relates to Ida Finds Her Voice. Uh, in Psychology Today, journalist Tiffany McLean wrote an article called Becoming White, which explored how racial identity of white mothers is shaped by parenting biracial kids. This is what she wrote. I've been most surprised to learn about the ways in which becoming a parent of a child of color 
has caused these mothers to reconceptualize what it means to be white. While many of the women I interviewed have thought about their racial identity in passing, it wasn't until they experienced race firsthand through this unique lens of parenthood that they really began thinking about the nuances of race relations in America. For many of them, they became aware that they had been thinking of themselves almost as neutral or default, that is lacking a racialized body until they had children of their own. So Jennifer, does any of this passage resonate with you? I certainly understand what she is saying. I generally don't like to present myself <laughs> first saying, hi, I'm a, I'm a mom of biracial children or a biracial family. I kind of like people to get to know me first because uh, I've seen too many uh, white women um, with kids of color that are pretty ignorant to race and to what their children are going to have to deal with. Um, I I was on this path uh, before my children. I was on this path uh, before I met my husband. Um, My husband I met 30 years ago and over 30 years ago. And and at that time it was like, oh, we're all the same. (laughs) And, And the longer we were together, the more we realized, oh, no, we're so different. Um, my husband and I, we made a conscious effort to, to make sure that we were going to teach our children everything about them, you know, the black side, the white side, showing them love. And we, we understood the difficulty uh, that they would be facing. But the, I will add that I was never a mother before, so absolutely made mistakes, but I learned from it. But I, I was aware, and I do appreciate what uh, that woman wrote. Um, because that is the truth for many white women. I, in fact, have a friend who um, is a black woman. She married a white man, and um, her children present as white. Like, if she's not around, mm-hmm. you just think that they were white mm-hmm. people. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they're close in age. She had them boom, boom. And so um, she was home taking care of the infant when I think he was a toddler, right? The older one who was a toddler just walked out the front door. He just decided it was a good time to go take a walk in the street <laughs> while his mother was occupied. Oh boy. Um, sure. So this is in Shaker Heights, <laughs> Ohio. So she had to go like running outside to find her baby. And he was on um, the corner and two women who were walking had like, you know, they picked him up. Oh, and she was like, Oh, thank you. And she like reached her hands for her son and she had to convince them that that was her child. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's 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 real stuff, and that happens right. daily. Uh, there's just a lot of ignorant people out there. Um, so I'm guessing that these people saw your friend just as a black person, not not as a mother. They they couldn't get beyond her skin color, and that is the issue. They didn't see her as a mother, and that's where there was a problem. And that's where there's a problem in societies that we're not seeing each other as individuals, and that's. Right that we hoped to do, you know, but that, that does not surprise me, Maisha at all. Uh, that, that kind of thing happens often. So for other parents who are committed to anti-racism, can you tell me what anti-discrimination books should they explore? Well, so go ahead, Jennifer. Do you mind if I start this case? So, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, the world kind of turned upside down. Uh, there was, 
a lot of people re-educating themselves. So I went through a process. I joined a, you know, I was in a couple book clubs, uh, a racial justice book club. So I had to go through the process of looking at myself, working on me, uh, working on, you know, finding out history. Um, so I did my white stuff, my white fragility stuff, uh, <laughs> uh, white trash, uh, the new Jim Crow, right. um, you know, you know, books to educate, to find out real history uh, and what it means to be white in America, what it means to be black in America, what it means to be a minority in America. You know, I've been having to do my homework, I've been doing my homework even more so the last number of years than I had ever done before. So you really like uh, white fragility and uh, white trash. I feel like you mentioned one other ones. Oh, the new Jim Crow, right? Yeah. So, so when I said those two, those were just like the starters, like as a white person is like just to slowly get into it um, and seeing like why white people are the way they are. So it was, it was kind of like a, you know, white fragility. I felt like, oh, I wish I had this as a handbook 30 years ago. Um, that would have helped, you know, would have jump started me a little faster, you know, would have gotten me going a little bit faster. Um, and, and I have my black friends who read it and they kind of laugh like, well, duh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't you white women know this? And, and a lot of it, a lot of it, a lot of people just don't know. And, and for me, um, I'll do a little bit of throwback and a little bit of academic. So, so I'm just going to level set here. I came up during the civil rights and I then was um, moved down south in the mid 70s where I did not fit in. I was the outsider and my community was the black community. And I got to see different things from a different perspective. And that's why I always personally and professionally say we, we have to see things through other people's eyes. If you really want to understand what's going on, you need to take perspective. Now, there's a lot of academic pieces and research around perspective taking, but there's just a little piece of that for me. But when I was very young, I read this book called Black Like Me. Uh, are you familiar with that book? I am. That is an old it, one. Yeah, it is. It's an old one. But from a person who, uh, you know, the white person, you get to see and feel and experience through the eyes. And like, oh, my God. So just because of the color, they now people are assigning all these things, these attributes to you. Right. And wrong attributes or stereotypes or things like that. And so that that book, believe it or not, way, way back when, um, I didn't read it back in the 60s, but it was like in the 70s when I was becoming conscious of things. Um, that was one. Um, the new Jim Crow, for sure, because in my professional role in school districts and um, large, large, very large school districts and state level work, I saw the structural racism in school districts. And I saw children who were mislabeled, uh, misidentified, you know, your behavior problem, your, your special education, you're expelled. It's the pipeline to prison. So I've done a lot of work uh, and reading on that. And one of the great authors actually is Geneva Gay. And she's out of uh, University of Washington. And there's a lot of work on her for not only understanding, like from an educator standpoint, every teacher, every principal, I'd say every parent should read that because it talks about color, but then the cultural piece 
and then the culturally and linguistic pieces. And if we want to interrupt these bad cycles, we as the adult need to do things differently. And I guess I'd like to plug three other books. Um, Wait, before we move on from Kate, um, what is what is the name of Gay's book, please? I got to pull that back out. While she's looking it up, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel yep. Wilkerson. The Fire Next Time by James yes. Baldwin. And Just Mercy by Brian oh, Just Mercy, Stevenson. Of three uh, that really stand out to me also that helped me along with my journey. Wonderful. So Geneva Gay is um, Culturally Responsive Teaching, Theory, Research, and Practice. I had to pull that back out because she had added a little bit. So. <laughs> and then um, The New Jim Crow, of course. Um, and then an also a great, really great book is called The Newcomers, Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in America. So it's actually about um, immigrants coming into the school district uh, in Denver City Schools. And it's just a fascinating book. Again, put, it, put yourself in their shoes, their, their lens, and equity is all about, about that. Mm-hmm. Thank you both so much. So now let's ask you some of our Loganberry questions. Uh-oh. <laughs> Kate, I'm going to go with you for what three people, living or dead, would you invite to a dinner party? That's a really great question. So um, I would invite uh, John Lewis. He's one of my heroes uh, on the civil rights movement. The notorious RBG, um, because she is amazing on all kinds of uh, levels. And who would I like to have at the dinner table with those two? Actually, are my two daughters um, that are in their 20s, because we, again, it's all about the next generation. They need to take this and they need to run with it. That's beautiful. Thank you. All right. So, Jennifer, are you ready to tell us what are your highs? And what are your lows? What lifts you up and inspires you? And what kind of bums you out? <laughs> well, my highs, I, I love music. I have a couple musicians in the family. Being out on a porch, you know, in nature, seeing the birds uh, and music playing, that's my happy place. I'm really into meditation. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the beauty that nature provides. So that that is definitely a high. My lows, um, you know, I've experienced a number of lows uh, recently just by what's been going on. Uh, you know, hatred, ignorance, um, my children being vulnerable. Uh, you know, my children are uh, young adults, so they're not under my care. Uh, so I just, mm-hmm. that's a low when I, when I know that they are struggling. Dr. Kate Anderson Foley and Jennifer Anderson Smith. Thank you so much for spending time with Lines of Loganberry. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links to the books discussed in this episode included in the episode description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. 
Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.